Hey everybody, welcome to SC with DA, chapter 13. Welcome to those of you that are signing in on Instagram and to those of you that are viewing on YouTube. Welcome. Hope you've had a great day today. All right, we've already got a bunch of people. Hey, Avery. Great to see you. Say hello to Savannah for me. All right. People signing on. Okay, here's here's what we're going to do tonight. I'll, I'll let people get signed on here. They tend to be very faithful. In fact, I should just take a moment here to give a big thank you and shout out to the whole online Instagram live community because you guys are like amazing. I, I log on at seven o'clock and by about 7.01, we've got basically a full house. So great job. Uh, I've, I've got a bunch of announcements to make here. Not a bunch, a couple announcements to make. So I'm going to let everybody get sort of onboarded here, but I will just say quickly that I've had a really good day today. First of all, I'm energized because I have a belly full of Puerto Rican food, beans and uh, rice and um, plantains, maduros. And so I'm happy. Thank you to Jose and Bernice, who, by the way, are at some point apparently going to come down and say hi. Um, because people have said, hey, we want to see what Jose and Bernice look like. So Jose, Bernice, whenever you want to come down, come on down. You can do it at the beginning or the end of the program. Totally up to you. So at some point, you'll get to say hi to Jose and Bernice, and they'll get to say hi to you. So I'm also happy, not just because I have a belly full of Puerto Rican food that was absolutely delicious. Thank you, Bernice. But because I went to the dentist today, you might remember a few days ago, I said I had chomped down on... Um, I think I told this story. I, I bit down on a rock in my wife's lentils. I think I told this story. Anyway, my tooth was in considerable pain, and I got into the dentist today, and the tooth had been getting progressively better, and a big shout out to my dentist friends, Sean and Tim. I was like taking pictures of the inside of my mouth. My wife was helping me. Bernice was one of my dental assistants, sending them pictures. It's really hard to get a picture on the inside of your mouth. <laughs> and anyway, the good news is I went in there. I saw my dentist today, Dr. Janice. And I said, Janice, here's the deal. I want you to tell me that everything's fine. And you've got me in on short notice and just, just send me on my way. I don't want any needles. I don't want any drills. I don't want any scraping. I like dentists. I have several friends that are dentists. I just don't like them professionally. So if you would just send me on my way, I'll be happy. And she took a couple x-rays. She poked around on my teeth a little bit, had me bite down on a couple things. And in like 10 minutes, I was out of there. She's like, your tooth is fine. And uh, it's just going to, there's going to be a little bit of pain. Totally fine. The root's fine. The nerve's fine. So, woo! Great news. So that's been my day today. The, the dentist, that was one of the best dental visits I ever had. It was short. It was sweet. It was non-invasive. So... I've had a great day today. I hope you have too. We're in chapter 13. Now, we have more and more people signing on. I'm going to make this announcement now. I will probably make it again, and then I'll put up a post about it on Instagram and Facebook. But here's the deal. If you would like to be enrolled in the drawing, okay, the drawing, this is what you're going to do. You're going to send an email to me personally, and my email is david at lightbearers.org. Okay, David, not David Asherick, David at 
lightbearers.org. And in the subject line, you're going to write these, you're going to write this, SC drawing, okay? SC drawing. That's the subject line, not hi, David, not steps to Christ drawing. No, SC drawing. And then in the uh, actual body of the email, just let me know if you're a first-time reader or not. Now, you can send a testimony or anything else you want to send. That's great, too. I'll be happy to read those. But that's how you're going to enroll in the drawing. Remember, we're going to be giving away two sets of the Marbled Edge Conflict Beautiful. And those are already being pre-ordered right now. I mentioned yesterday that there was just four sets left of the hand-dipped and they're gone now. I looked at them this morning, they're gone. And I texted Mark, I said, Mark, they're all gone. He said, they're gone. He said, it was funny, right after you made the announcement, it was like one sold, then another one sold, they were just sold within a few minutes. So we're gonna be giving away two sets of the Conflict Beautiful in the Marbled Edge. If you would like to be enrolled in that, then you need to send an email. I'm gonna say it again. And I'll put this up on an Instagram post in case you don't get it. David at lightbearers.org. David at lightbearers.org, and the subject line is going to say SC Drawing, okay? And then in the body, let me know if you're a first-time reader or not. Also, we're going to give away two sets of the Conflict Beautiful journals. So journals for Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, Great Controversy. It's a five-volume set of the journals, just like it's a five-volume set of the books. So if you'd like to be enrolled in the drawing, okay, that's very important. I'll make that announcement again at the end. Also, the final review session where we're going to just sort of take a, a review, a kind of cosmic look, a big picture look at Steps to Christ will be Saturday night. Did everyone hear that? I'll put this up on Instagram as well, but Saturday night is when we'll do the big review. That's also when we'll do the drawing or we'll announce who the, uh, the winners are. I'll do the, the drawing prior to that. So that's the big announcement, okay? Saturday night, 7 o'clock. I was going to do it on Friday night, but I, I think I'd rather do the drawing and all that after Sabbath. So Saturday night and Friday night and Saturday night tend to be our biggest nights anyway for the live uh, community. So, and this also gives the people that are listening on YouTube time to get enrolled in the drawing. Okay, I think I've said that enough times. We're in chapter 13. It looks like uh, Jose and Louis, uh, Louise, Jose and Bernice are going to come down at the end of the program, which is totally fine. Chapter 13. Can you believe it? And this is only going to be one session, right? Unlike the almost six hours, five and a half, six hours that we spent on chapter 12, this will be one session, even though it's a long chapter. I thought this chapter was really simple really simple, okay? This chapter basically can be cooked down, boiled down, distilled down to essentially be joyful in Jesus, think happy thoughts, joyful thoughts, speak joyful words, don't give in to the temptation of discouragement, despondency, and depression, and thereby defeat Satan. Basically, you know, that's it. Just, are you coming right now? Okay, come on. Here they come. Here comes Jose and Bernie. No, don't trip over anything there. That would be embarrassing. Okay, here they come. Now, you got to get right here. So this is Bernice. And that's Jose. Okay, come on. Jose, and you got to get down there. I got to see you in that screen too. There we go. There we go. 
Okay, that's Jose and Bernice. Now let me ask you guys a couple quick questions. Speak nice and loud. Right. What's it been like that I've taken over your basement for almost three weeks? Uh, Bernice, you first. Fantastic. I am sad it's the end. It's not the end until Saturday. Yeah, but I won't be here. So I know, you'll, but you can still watch. I can still watch. But it's, you, it's not been a giant inconvenience? No. Like, oh no, my basement. Oh no, my plants. Yeah, that's true, your plants. I do have to open the blinds every day. I'm instructed so that her plants can get light. How about you, Jose? What's I'll it been be like? That. A giant pain? It's a chapter, joy. Yeah, today's chapter's a yeah, joy. It's joy. It's, a, it's been a joy having these men here. These guys are great roommates. How am I as a roommate? You're great. I mean, he's like, awesome. Am I noisy? No. Am I a complainer? It's just no. like going back to college in there. You're picking up after you. <laughs> am I messy? No, man. It's, a little bit, maybe. It's like having a pet. The best, <laughs> pet, that you, the best pet that you can imagine. <laughs> you heard it here first. It's like having a pet. Bernice, what's it been like to have me? Try, try, to, try to help me to recover here a little bit. It's been great. Great conversations. A lot of questions and a lot of answers. It's been good. I, I'm gonna. I'm oh, getting sad that you're leaving soon. So Violet has already left. Will you be sad when I'm gone too? Of course. There'll be lots of tears. There's a lot, lot of prayers that you come back. Okay, I'll come back. Yeah. yeah. All right. Can we give them a big shout out, everybody? A big thank you. A, a big, a big. A okay, yeah. There we go. Big digital clap <laughs> for Jose and Bernice. Thank you guys. Love you so much. You're amazing. <laughs> All right, now that you know what they're gonna do, they're gonna walk upstairs and they're gonna get on their, well, I suppose Jose will be on his phone. Is that right, Jose? Yeah. And then Bernice, what, on your iPad? Yep. And one's gonna sit in the living room and one's gonna sit in their bedroom while I'm in the basement. That's what they've been doing for the last three weeks. Aren't they just the most beautiful people? I love them, I love them so much. Um, okay, chapter 13. Chapter 13, here we are. Uh, rejoicing in the Lord. And I'm still trying to get over the fact that Jose just said that having me in the house is a little bit like having a pet. <laughs> oh, man, we've had a ton of fun. Violet and I have been here in this home for the last like two months, and I, I could move in permanently. I could just live here. I, I'd be happy to be their pet. <laughs> okay, rejoicing in the Lord. As I was saying before Jose, Bernice, and Bernice came down, this chapter to me is very simple. Remember all the things that we've read, the, the, the 12 chapters up to this point. Remember those things. Think happy thoughts, triumphant thoughts. To me, it was really important and significant that the very last word in the whole book and the whole chapter was the word triumph. I mean, did, did anybody else notice that? Like the word, and it actually occurs two times in the chapter, but we end on this victorious, triumphant note, and we should move forward in our walk our Christian walk, our journey, rejoicing, right? Primarily joy and happiness and cheer. And she says, having a sunny, smiling face. And that's not some self-help. It's not some, you know, artificial or contrived happiness. It's a happiness that is the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. It infills us. John said there right at the beginning when he was writing his epistle, 1 John, he says, I've written these things to you that your joy may be full. And we can have fullness of joy because of who Jesus is, because of what he has accomplished, and because of who we are in him. So for that reason, the chapter ends on this high, celebratory, triumphant note of rejoicing. And so it's quite a simple chapter. In fact, 
it's a little bit repetitive, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but she finds numerous different ways and numerous different angles to basically say the same thing over and over again. Be joyful, be joyful, be joyful. Dispel thoughts of despair and discouragement and depression. Put those out of your mind. Don't let your mouth say them because your ears hear what your mouth says. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to be, so much to celebrate. Jesus has triumphed over sin, Satan, and death, and therefore our lives should be largely characterized by joy. Of course, the root word of rejoicing is joy. And so even though it's a long chapter, we're going to kind of motor through it. There were a couple really cool things in this chapter, things that like popped out to me and I was like, oh, I like that. And I just want to say right now up front, and I don't want any controversy over this. I'm looking at you, Hannah. My word tonight is a compound word. Okay, to be clear, I checked the bylaws. I went back to the Constitution. Compound words are allow allowed, allowable. Um, it's not two words, to be clear. It's a compound word. And I will not tolerate any criticism of my compound word. <laughs> Okay, so let's pray. We're going to get into this amazing last chapter. Back on Saturday night for our wrap, review, drawing, conclusion. So let's start with prayer. Father in heaven, bless us for this last chapter. Bless us in this last chapter. Father, thank you for the kindness and the, the open-heartedness that Bernice and Jose have showed to Violetta and myself and to the whole SC with DA community. Lord, now as we turn our attention here to this chapter, I pray that it would be a high note, a celebratory note, a triumphant note, a victorious note, that we will go out of this amazing book on top, feeling like we have taken these steps to Christ and with Christ and in Christ, a Christ who is triumphant, a Messiah who is victorious. And so bless us now as we turn our attention to you, Father. May we be like the flowers that turn to the sun, that we may receive all of the warm, sunny rays that you long to give to us. Shower us tonight with your blessings is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn with me to chapter 13. Chapter 13. What's somebody say there? <laughs> oh, Mary's saying she, oh no, she's saying somebody tried a compound word and they got shot down. I don't remember, okay, I can neither confirm nor deny this, but I don't think I've ever criticized anybody for a compound word. Two words, anyway, we'll get to that later. Two words not allowed, unless you're Hannah, who sometimes has four words, but, and now that she has a newborn child, she like, she smuggles another word in. She says, this is my word, this is my child's word. It's like, Hannah, your child can't have a word. Your son is a month old. Okay, that doesn't count. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Chapter 13, paragraph one. We are off to the races. The children of God are called to be representatives of Christ. I'm gonna hazard a guess that many people had as their word or have as their word representative. I think it's a totally legitimate word for this chapter. In fact, I actually made a list of one, two, three, four words that I think are all excellent words for me for this chapter, and one of them was representative. The children of God are called to be representatives of Christ, showing forth the goodness and mercy of the Lord, as Jesus has revealed to us the true character of the Father. And just underline that, that sentence there. Jesus has revealed to us the true character of the Father. 
And I tell people this over and over again. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the stories of Jesus. See how he treated people, how he taught people, how he healed people, how he conducted himself. And just tell yourself over and over again, like a mantra, just just every day, tell yourself as you read some story, some incident, some teaching, some chapter in one of the Gospels, tell yourself this. This is what God looks like. This is who God is. This is how God behaves. This is how God treats people. And so what she says there is exactly correct. Jesus has revealed to us the true character of the Father. So we are to reveal Christ to a world that does not know his tender, pitying love, like we talked about in last chapter, to know, to know his tender, pitying love. As uh, Jesus goes on to say, as you sent me into the world, said Jesus, I have also sent them into the world. I and them and you and me that the world may know that you have sent me, quoting from John 17. The Apostle Paul says to the disciples of Christ, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, a letter of Christ, known and read by all men, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 2. In every one of his children, Jesus sends a letter to the world. If you are Christ's followers, he sends in you a letter to the family, the village, the street where you live. That is so cool. And that was another word that I thought could very, uh, very, um, uh, what's what I'm looking for here, very accurately represent this chapter. The word letter, that we are letters to the world. We are letters to our family. We are letters to the neighborhood. Very cool. I like that. She continues, Jesus dwelling in you desires to speak to the hearts of men who are not yet acquainted with him. That's what we've been talking about over the last five hours in the to know, to know, to know that God by his spirit indwells us and God's indwelling spirit cries out to God, Abba, Father. And it's amazing. Perhaps they do not read the Bible or do not hear the voice that speaks to them in its pages. They do not see the love of God through his work. So they're not reading the Bible and they're not seeing the handiwork of God in creation. But if you, you representative, you letter, are a true representative of Jesus, it may be, and I really like what she does in this last sentence, it may be that through you, they will be led to understand something. I really like the use of the word something there something of his goodness and to be one to love and to serve him. Now, what I like about the use of, first of all, I like a lot of things there, but I want to just dwell on this something. We sometimes have this idea that if we have not witnessed to a person to such a degree and to such an extent that they are baptized, you know, under our influence, that they've gone from, you know, disinterest or even hostility right through the whole spiritual continuum, and then they get baptized, that if that has not occurred on our watch, that we have somehow failed in our responsibility as a representative in a letter. That's not true. All of us are contributing a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, if I play my role, they'll get something. And if you play your role, they might get something. If somebody else, it's always, you know, you know the saying, it takes a village. Well, it, it takes a church, right? If people are going to come into the faith, you can't just have one dynamic evangelist or one charismatic pastor. What we need is lots of loving and lovable Christians, and if, if this loving and lovable Christian teaches this person this little something of his goodness, and this loving and lovable Christian teaches them something else about his goodness and love, all of this then collectively work together to woo people. People are one to a community by a community, largely. Now, there are certainly circumstances where there's one primary witness, friend, individual that brings somebody from sort of zero to baptism. That happens. But for the most part, people are one by a community to a community. And I love that. I'm going to read that last sentence again. If you are a true representative of Jesus, it may be, 
Oh, I like that. That through you, they will be led to understand something of his goodness and be one to love and serve him. I'm just going to throw this out there. If you haven't already, go on YouTube and type in Asherick, that's my last name, Bridges Not Walls, and watch that presentation. That's a presentation about this very thing. How do we move people along this spiritual continuum? And I talk in that presentation about what I call the X to 10 fallacy. And it's exactly what she's describing here. This person contributes something. This person contributes something. This person contributes something. This person contributes something. And collectively, over time, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, right? Over time, people can come to an awareness of the goodness of God and of his love and of his faithfulness in Christ. But it's only very rarely one person that is solely responsible for bringing somebody from sort of zero to disciple. No, it takes a church. It takes a community to win people to a community. And I love this. So basically, this is the paragraph. We are letters to our neighborhood. We are letters to the world. We are letters to our family. We are letters to our street. We are representatives. And if Christ is in us by his spirit, it will shine out. You don't have to grit your teeth and make it happen. No, if we are living the life that Christ has called us to live and we are infilled with the spirit, it will naturally occur. A couple chapters ago, one of the things that Ellen White said is there should be nothing more natural than a Christian turning in love and in service and in obedience to God as a, as a flower turns to the sun. So you don't have to work up all this energy and you know be very disciplined in order to be a great witness. If you just live the life that Christ has called you to live, you will be a representative, a letter to the world around you. Second paragraph, Christians are set as light bearers. Oh, I like that. Light bearers like a good name for a ministry, wouldn't it? Like Light Bearers Ministry. I like the sound of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run that by Ty Gibson and see what he thinks. Christians are set as light bearers on the way to heaven. They are to reflect to the world the light shining upon them from Christ. Their life and character should be such that through them, others will get a right conception of Christ and of his service. Now, one of the really interesting things about this chapter, and I don't know if anybody else noticed this, as near as I can tell, this chapter talks about Satan more than any of the other chapters. I counted 10 times that the word Satan or Satan occurs in this chapter. Satan comes up over and over and over and over again in this chapter. And I think strategically there's a reason for that. Let, let me just sort of run this by you. So this idea of light bearers, right? That, that we reflect the goodness of God. We reflect the glory of God. That it, that, that that she actually uses the word reflect there, that it shines through us. Well, Satan, Lucifer, was the original light bearer. Satan, of course, means enemy or adversary, but prior to his rebellion, his irrational rebellion, he was Lucifer, literally light bearer, right? As an angel of God, he was to shed forth the light of the glory of God to the angelic host. And so to me, it's fascinating that she uses the word light bearer here and actually numerous times in this chapter, while this is, I think, the only place that she uses that, that phrase there, light bearer, she actually goes back to the well several times about Christ shining through us, Christ reflecting off of us, and that we are conduits to show the world the goodness of God. And so you have the metaphor of a representative, you have the metaphor of a which is more than just a metaphor, it's the truth. We are God's ambassadors, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. 
But you have the representative idea, you have the letter or epistle idea, and then you hear you have the reflector idea, like the sun and the moon. The sun has its own light, the moon does not have its own light, but it reflects the light of the sun. Okay, and then, uh, very next paragraph, if we do represent Christ, right, there's our word represent or representative, we shall make his service appear attractive. And then I like that she throws this in, as it really is. Okay, I've got a little pet peeve here I'm going to throw out. I'm so glad she added that, as it really is. We, we make his service attractive, comma, as it really is. In other words, it's not, we're not faking it. And sometimes you will hear people say in a church service, this is a little pet peeve of mine, they'll say, okay, everybody, let's stand to our feet and sing whatever the song is, this praise song or hymn number 369 and sing it like you mean it. Wait, sing it like I mean it? <laughs> no. We know you don't actually mean it, but, but sing it as if you meant it. No, 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 no. Sing it with enthusiasm because you mean it right? Like, like, let's not pretend like, oh yeah, that's right. Let's sing Marching to Zion like we mean it. No, no, we're not going to sing like we mean it. We're going to sing with enthusiasm and joy and energy because we mean it, because we're living it. And this joyful, melodic expression of our life is going to be enthusiastic because it's actual, it's real, it's how we're living. It's substantive, right? So I love that she says, if we do represent Christ, we shall make his service appear attractive, comma, as it really is. Bam. Jumping down, uh, continuing to read, Christians who gather up gloom and sadness to their souls and murmur and complain are giving to others a false representation of God and of the Christian life. They give the impression that God is not pleased to have his children happy. Whoa, can't have that. In this, they bear false witness against our Heavenly Father. Whoa, fascinating. That's a violation of the ninth commandment, right? Bearing you shall not bear false witness. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting that when we are not cheerful Christians, when we bring gloom and sadness, you know, sort of as our atmosphere, right? Our fragrance, we're breaking the ninth commandment because we're telling a lie about God. Think of that. Think of that. We're taking the name of Christian. We're going to church. When others ask us, if, oh, are you a religious person? Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But then if our attitude communicates something that is not accurate about who God actually is, like consistently, obviously we're going to sometimes have our downs and our ups and our, I get that, but like consistently, then we are lying. We're, we're telling a lie about God. We're bearing false witness. It's a very cool way to think about, wait a minute, I don't want to tell lies about God. I want to tell the truth about God. And if I'm going to tell the truth about God, there's going to be a smile on my face. There's going to be joy in my heart. And I'm not going to sing it like I mean it. I'm going to sing it with great joy and enthusiasm because it's my actual experience. Maybe you've heard the saying before, fake it till you make it. Have you heard that before? Right? So like if you're not feeling really up or you're going through a downtime or discouragement, fake it until you make it. No, 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 no. I have something better. I actually got this from Jennifer Schwarzer. Don't fake it until you make it. Faith it until you make it. Big difference. Faith it until you make it is saying, as an act of faith, I know God is good. I know Jesus is triumphant. I know his spirit lives in me. And because I know all of those things are true by faith, I'm going to talk this way, and I'm going to think this way, and I'm going to talk to others this way. And all of a sudden, when you faith it until you make it, that then becomes reality. So make a note of that. 
Not fake it until you make it. Faith it until you make it. And I really, really like that. And then she goes on to say, Satan. Next paragraph, Satan. And he shows up over and over again in this chapter by design, I think. Because even this book has that kind of cosmic conflict feel, right? Like the great controversy that, that Satan shows up at just the moment when there's triumph, at just the moment when there's security and assurance in Christ, at just the moment when there's joy, Satan shows up to try and discourage, to try to introduce depression and gloom and despondency. And she's like, no, let's read that. Satan is exultant, happy, joyful when he can lead the children of God into unbelief and despondency. He delights to see us mistrusting God, doubting his willingness and power to save us. He loves to have us feel that the Lord will do, do us harm by his providences. It is the work of Satan to represent the Lord as lacking in compassion and pity. He mistakes the truth in regard to him. He fills the imagination with false ideas concerning God. And instead of dwelling upon the truth in regard to our Heavenly Father, we often fix our minds upon the misrepresentations of Satan and dishonor God by trusting, distrusting him and murmuring against him. Satan ever seeks to make the religious life one of gloom. Oh, woe is me. He desires it to appear toilsome and difficult. And when the Christian present, presents or represents his own life in view of this religion, he is, through his unbelief, seconding the falsehood of Satan. What, which is quite fascinating because earlier she said we bear false witness about God, and here she's basically saying it's like you give a second in a committee meeting to Satan. If you've ever been in a committee meeting, somebody makes a motion, and in order for that motion to get on the floor and be discussed, it has to receive a second. So a good chairperson, if there's a motion, the chairperson will say, is there a second? And then somebody says, second, and then it's available for discussion among the constituents. Okay, so this is interesting. She's saying, Satan has already made a motion about God, about his kingdom, about his character, misrepresentations. And then she says, when we behave with gloom, despondency, despair, discouragement, what we're basically saying is, I second that motion. So Satan's made a motion, and we second it. I don't want to be seconding Satan's motions. The adversary, the enemy of God? No. No, 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 no. And we've already spent quite a little bit of time back in chapters 1 and 2 talking about these false representations of who God is. And the last thing I want to be doing is seconding Satan's incorrect and misleading notions about God and his goodness and his governance. Okay. Then she talks about the Christian person and I think we all know people like this, and maybe some of us are these people, but people that just dwell upon their own struggles, their own shortcomings, their own mistakes, their own faults, their own difficult life. They kind of wander around, woe is me, woe is me. Paragraph says, many walking in the path of life dwell upon their mistakes and their failures and their disappointments, and their hearts are filled with grief and discouragement. And then she goes on to tell this story about when she was in Europe, there was this sister, and she tells the story about walking around in a garden. And it was a beautiful garden with all of these different kinds of flowers and smells and fragrances and designs and colors. And the friend in the garden, in, in this uh, story that she's recounting here, notices the thorns and the thistles. And, the, and she's like, what are you doing? Why are you paying attention? Yeah, those are there. But why notice those things? There's flowers. Lift up your gaze and yes. There will always be something to complain about, something to be discouraged about, something to be anxious about, something to be fearful about. Yep, if you look for those thorns, you'll find them. But why look at the thorns? We're surrounded by flowers. That is to say, evidences of God's goodness and love. I, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I will only say that as a pastor, 
I have, in my pastoral ministry, been in situations where my church has had the occasional person that it's just their life is so dark, so hard, so difficult. And what's remarkable is there will be other, and by the way, I know life can be hard. I get it. I totally get it. Life can be hard and it can be difficult. But at the end of the day, if God is good and Jesus has conquered sin and death and Satan, nothing should be able to get us all the way down. I mean, I just lost a friend and I'm sad. I'm disheartened. I'm discouraged. The last email I received from my friend Jed just a few weeks ago, he said, David, I want you to know I've been praying for you and your family every single day for the last four years. And I believe him. He was a man of faith. He was a man of God. He was a man of principle. And I'm sad that Jed is gone. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic that his beautiful wife and his two daughters are now without a father. I, I, it, life is hard, man. But Jesus has conquered death. Like the Apostle Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, right? Like we sorrow, but not like others who don't have any hope. So even our sorrows are mingled with joy. Even our sorrows are mingled with anticipation. Even our sorrows are mingled with hope and triumph. But I have in my pastoral ministry had people that are just like, dude, they're just heavy to be around. And I'm not going to lie. They are seconding Satan's accusations against God. They don't make Christianity or Christ look attractive. And it's super not. And what I was going to say is in situations where I've been in pastoral ministry, there have been other people in that very same church or churches that have had even more difficult lives, even harder struggles, and they don't have that sort of depressed atmosphere around them. So it's really not a product of their life situation because life is hard for everybody, right? Harder for some than others. Nobody would disagree with that. But, but what are we looking at? Are we looking at the thorns and the thistles or are we looking at the roses and the flowers? And, and I really like that. I really like that. Then she asks, man, I like this. I'm on page 155. She just like asks, like, like as a kind of cross-examiner, right? Just this, she's just gonna interrogate and cross-examine here, just a bunch of questions that are all designed to get a person who naturally or reflexively sort of hones in on their own discouragement and failures and doubts and despondency. She just like starts asking questions, and I like this. The whole paragraph is questions. Have there not been some bright spots in your experience? Question number one. Have you not had some precious seasons when your heart throbbed with joy in response to the Spirit of God? Question number two, right? The, the implied answer to all of this is yes. When you look back into the chapters of your life experience, do you not find some pleasant pages? Question number three, are not God's promises like fragrant flowers growing beside your path on every hand? Question number four, will you not let their beauty and sweetness fill your heart with joy? Five questions, all of which have the implied answer of yes. Yes. So where's the focus? That's the point. Like you got to calibrate. We're either going to calibrate to life or we're going to calibrate to the Lord. Oh, I like that. I, I like that. We either calibrate to life with all of its hardships and its difficulties, or we calibrate to the Lord of glory with all of his goodness and his faithfulness. And if we calibrate to life, we're going to be, by beholding, we're going to become changed and we're going to be largely overwhelmed with the state of the world. I mean, the world has lost its collective mind. I'm sure you've noticed. Like every generation says that, but come on. <laughs> you cannot just continue to, we cannot as a culture or as a society just continue to say, well, every generation has said that. Yeah, at some point, 
the little boy that's crying wolf, there actually might be a wolf. And we're living in a world that is so morally upside down, so culturally upside down, so upside down on so many levels that if you spend enough time staring at news programs and absorbing over politics or the culture, you're going to become hugely discouraged. And you calibrate to the to the world and to your life, and it's not going to go well for you. But if we calibrate to the Lord, it doesn't mean that we're a Pollyanna and just pretend like everything's always fine all the time and you can never be slightly down or slightly concerned or slightly anxious. No, that's not what we're saying. Primarily calib calibrating to the Lord means we're aware there are thorns. We're aware there are thistles. We're aware there are hardships, but they do not compare, right? That's what Paul says. I reckon that the, the, the trials and tribulations of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories that shall be revealed, right? Like it's all about context. To use a, a maybe a poor analogy, but one that just came to my head, and I think it's quite a good one. The armies of Israel were all comparing Goliath to themselves. And they were like, whoa, look at Goliath. No way. He's bigger. He's stronger. He's brash. He's crass. No way. None of us could take Goliath. David shows up, right, as the cheese deliverer from his father, Jesse. David shows up, and he doesn't think, oh, Goliath compared to me. He thinks, wait, wait, what? Goliath compared to, to God. Goliath compared to Yahweh. Goliath compared to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes the correct calibration. Yeah, there's Goliath. And he's terrifying. And he's tall. Okay, yes. Yes, there he is. He's a, but where's the comparison? Is it, is it me to Goliath or is it Goliath to Jesus? Because the gap between, take for example, any of those Israelite soldiers and Goliath, you know, that's that big of a gap. It's a big gap. It's a serious gap. But the gap between Jesus, Yahweh, and Goliath is an infinite gap. And so too with us. Yeah, the world has got some issues, man. There's a lot of Goliaths in the world. There's a lot of things that we could get discouraged about. It doesn't mean that we should have our head in the sand. Ostriches don't actually do that, by the way. That's a myth about ostriches. But it doesn't mean we should have our head in the sand and pretend like things aren't hard and that life isn't difficult. But we're calibrating to the sun. We're calibrating to the Lord. And so... I like that. She just goes down. Five questions. Just, just asking, just cross-examining. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, going to skip over the next paragraph. Jump down to the paragraph that says, it is not wise to gather together all the unpleasant recollections of a past life. Correct. It's iniquities. It's disappointments. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. She says, don't spend a bunch of time gathering together all the sins you committed right? Like we have, of course, a private inventory of our sins. Our public sins are public. If we blew it, if we made a mistake, if we said something we shouldn't have said, if we told a lie, if we gossiped and others are aware of it, they have a partial inventory of our sinfulness and of our iniquity. We have a full inventory of our, we know all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, all of our thoughts. But even so, don't go gathering up your disappointments and your iniquities. Fascinating. Let me read that again. It is not wise to gather together all the unpleasant recollections of a past life, our iniquities, that is to say sins and disappointments, to talk over them, to mourn over them until we are eventually overwhelmed with discouragement. A discouraged soul is filled with darkness, shutting out the light of God from his own soul, casting a shadow upon the path of others. This is back to that light bearer theme, right? Like, like if we're not shining the light of Jesus out of us, then we're bringing darkness. This is why Jesus said, don't put your light under a bushel. You have a light, the light of God shining in you and through you. 
let it shine out to the world. That's why we called our discipleship school Arise, based on Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for, the, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Darkness covers the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory will be seen on thee, or on you. But if we're not letting God's glory shine in us and through us and reflecting to the world around us as light bearers, well, then we bring darkness. We bring despair. We bring gloom. We bring despondency. We bring doubt. Next paragraph. Thank God for the bright pictures which he has presented to us. Let us group together the blessed assurances of his love that we may look upon him continually. Okay, notice. In this paragraph, she talks about grouping together the bright pictures. In the preceding paragraph, she says, um, gathering together all the unpleasant recollections. Okay, so when you're taking an inventory of your life, past or present, or even future, I suppose, if you're worrying about the future, though Jesus expressly commands us not to worry, but let's just say, if you're gathering together sort of the catalog of your past and your present, she says, gather the good stuff, gather the flowers, right? Don't come with a giant bouquet of thistles and thorns and weeds and dirt no, come with the flowers. We know the thistles are there. We know the thorns are there. We know the briars are there. We know the iniquities are there. We know the sins are there. We know the depression is there. We know. We've all been redeemed. We've all been rescued. So don't bring that stuff. Gather together. She's talking about in your mind. In your mind, think about the bright things. Think about the redemption that is yours in Christ. Beautiful. Yeah, I see Wesley there says, um, Winston Churchill says, if you're going through hell, keep going. Exactly. Keep going. Okay, turning the page. I thought this... Oh, here's the second time she uses the word triumph. Top of page 156, 118 of the original. I'll just quickly read this sentence. The Son of God, leaving his Father's throne, clothing his divinity with humanity. These are the things we should be thinking about. That he might rescue man from the power of Satan. His triumph in our behalf. Triumph. That's the last word of the whole book. Triumph which I think would be another great word. It's not my word, because that's not a compound word, but I'm just going to write that down over here. I got my little list of other possible words, and I'm going to add triumph. By the way, just go back and look at that triumph there. And notice what she says is, his triumph in our behalf. Exactly right. Jesus has... Already, we spent time talking about this, the ink of history is dry. Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended. The ink of history is dry. So Satan is conquered, death is conquered, sin is conquered. If you receive Jesus, you don't add any new data to the salvation equation. You just link on with the train that's already victorious, with the train of triumph. And so I, I wanted to just highlight that there. Then she does a, what I think is a very, very cool thing. In the next paragraph, she just transitions just poof, from the love of a mother to our heavenly father. I don't know if anybody else picked up on that, but I thought this was very cool. And uh, as somebody that's a big fan, uh, as somebody who's a big fan of my own mother, who's amazing, right? I've had three fathers, but only one mother, and who has seen my wife, Violetta, be an incredible mother. I'm a big fan of mothers. And I really like what Ellen White does here. When we seem to doubt God's love, this is 156, 118. When we seem to doubt God's love and distrust his promises, we dishonor him and grieve his Holy Spirit. How would a mother feel if her children were constantly complaining of her, 
just as though she did not mean them well, that her whole life's effort, that her whole life's effort had been to forward their interest. Oh, wait, wait, I've, I've read this wrong here. Just as though she did not mean them well, when her whole life's effort had been to forward their interests and to give them comfort. Suppose that they should doubt her love. It would break her heart. How would any parent feel that would thus be treated by his children? Okay, so obviously she's writing from a mother's perspective because she was a mother. But then notice how she just instantly transitions from these motherly emotions and this motherly perspective to our heavenly father. Now, not to go too deep on this, but to state the truth, the, 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 the emphatic biblical truth, men and women are equally in the image of God. God created them male and female. So while I'm not aware of any passage that refers to God as our mother, I am certainly aware of numerous passages in, passages in Scripture that affirm God possessing mother-like qualities, motherly qualities, maternal qualities. So, so yes, we use the language of Father because that's the language that Jesus used. It's the language that the Old Testament uses as well. But our Heavenly Father, who is imaged in both males and females, has all of those beautiful motherly and maternal characteristics equally to all of the fatherly and paternal characteristics. So you have things like, can a woman forget her suckling children? They may, but I won't forget you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, as a hen desires to gather her chicks under her wings, I wanted to gather you together. So these, this emphasis on a mother's love, and she just transitions immediately to our heavenly father. So she sees no disconnect, and you shouldn't either. You should see zero disconnect between motherly virtues and, and the, the beauty of a mother's heart and our heavenly father. Okay? How can our heavenly father regard us when we distrust his love, which has led him to give us his only begotten son that we might have life? So, so no, she's asking the same question. How does a mother feel when her love is spurned how does our Heavenly Father feel when His love is spurned? She's clearly using here the mother as a parallel to our Heavenly Father because she understands what I think any sensible Bible student would understand, that God is imaged in both men and women equally, male and female equally, fathers and mothers equally. God doesn't have like these secondary virtues, these like feminine virtues and feminine characteristics and motherly that are secondary, they're like less important. No, in fact, as I think I've already said, if I haven't said it in this session, I know I've said it before in these With DA Challenges, the story of creation is that creation is moving from chaos to completion in Genesis 1 and 2, from chaos to completion. Things are getting more ordered, more godly, more glorifying the creator. And so if you go from chaos to completion and things are getting progressively and incrementally more godly, more good, so that God will eventually look upon it all and say, it is very good. Ask yourself this question. What's the last thing God made? And you can say, well, mankind, correct. Who did he make first? Oh, he made males first, and then women were made last. Women as, as, as life givers, as life carriers, right? Carrying a child in their body and, and, and feeding a child from their body. I mean, there is something particularly divine about femininity. God is moving from, from, from chaos to completion, and the last thing, the thing that, that, that completely consummates his creative act is the woman? This is incredible. So yes, men and women equally bear the image of God, and sometimes you'll hear this like, oh, the woman is an afterthought. She's made second. No, that's actually not the story that Moses is telling. It's not the story that the creation account's telling. It's that, that mankind was the crowning act, and something about 
feminine qualities and beauty was particularly amazing, right? It was the last thing, right? We save the best for last. Anyway, I could go long on that. Um, I'm going to turn a couple pages here uh, over to page 158. This is uh, 120. She again comes back, as she does several times, to this kind of light bearer motif. The paragraph begins, There is many a brave soul, sorely pressed by temptation, almost ready to faint in conflict with self and with the powers of evil. Do not discourage such a one in his, in his hard struggle. Cheer him with brave, hopeful words. Oh, I like that. Not just hopeful words, but brave, hopeful words that shall urge him on his way. Thus the light of Christ may shine from you. Light bearer. The light of Christ shines from you. None of us lives to himself, Romans 14, 7. By our unconscious influence, others may be encouraged and strengthened, or they may be discouraged and repelled from Christ and the truth. There are many who have an erroneous idea of the life and character of Christ. They think that he was devoid of warmth and sunniness, that he was stern and severe and joyless. In many cases, the whole religious experience is colored by these gloomy views. I have one particular person in my mind that over the years I've had a I had the privilege of pastoring, and I really liked this person, but man, this person just carried like the cartoon that wanders around with a cloud over their head, and try as I might to speak to this person about joy and hope and resilience and to speak these brave, encouraging words, they just couldn't see it. They just couldn't shake off this funk that they were in, and in hindsight, I probably should have given them a homework assignment and said, Here's chapter 13 of Steps to Christ. Read it every single day of your life until the cloud disappears. No, our lives should be overcome with joy. And, with, and people say, oh, you know, she goes on to say, oh, well, the Bible says that Jesus wept and that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but there's no record of him smiling or laughing. Well, this is the dumbest argument ever. That's what's called an argument from silence. Ellen White, by the way, is not making that argument. She's laughing at that argument. She's saying it's absurd. Right? Like the, the Bible does not record every single thing that Jesus did, right? The Bible doesn't say, for example, that Jesus washed his face that I'm aware of, or that Jesus slept on the ground, or that Jesus sneezed. We have no record of Jesus sneezing. Jesus never sneezed. Well, no. The fact that we don't have a record of Jesus sneezing doesn't mean that he didn't sneeze. The fact that we don't have a record of him sleeping on the ground doesn't mean he didn't sleep on the ground. No, of course he was a man of great joy. You know how you know this? I'll just give you a couple examples. In Mark chapter 10, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus has that incredible interaction with him, Mark 10, the Luke and the John accounts don't, don't have this exact line, but Mark says, and Jesus looking at him loved him. Now, I don't know how it's possible to imagine that interaction of Jesus looking at him and loving him in my mind's eye, I can't see that happening in any other way than a giant smile being across Jesus' face. I mean, if you're looking at somebody and loving them, what are you, scowling? Are you frowning? Is your brow furrowed? No, it is not. When you look at someone, look at it, just right then, just instinctively, reflexively. Also, there's another little piece of, of, uh, a little piece of advice. There are numerous things that Jesus says in the Gospels and several in the Sermon on the Mount that are clearly funny. They're humorous. And for example, when Jesus says, when you see the, the little speck in your brother's eye, don't consider the giant plank or beam in your own eye. That's funny. When Jesus says, hey, do people gather, you know, uh, grapes from thistles in agricultural context and people would have laughed at that. Right? Jesus purposefully said things that were exaggerative. 
and some of them were designedly humorous. So this idea that, that Jesus was a killjoy, that he had a man of gloom wandering around with his brow furrowed and a frown perpetually on his face is flatly untrue. And the fact that you can't point to a specific text that says Jesus smiled or Jesus laughed is immaterial. The assumption, the Bible, anyway, I could go on in this. We don't decide what Jesus did or did not do based on the absence of a specific canonical record of it, right? Jesus sneezed, Jesus coughed, Jesus slept on the ground, right? Jesus did a lot of things, okay? Um, one of the com sort of like the undergirding commands of Scripture and invitations of Scripture is to be joyful. Well, was Jesus in violation of, of his own teaching that the joy of the Lord is our strength? I mean, I could, I've been reading through the Psalms. I just read through Psalm 69 this morning in my personal devotions. There are a great many Psalms that are Psalms of joy, ecstatic enthusiasm, right? Joy is not only a privilege, it's a requirement in the Christian faith. And happily for us, it's, it's not difficult to be joyful. So it's impossible to imagine Jesus being anything other than joyful. Go to the next paragraph. Our Savior was deeply serious and earnest, intensely in earnest, true, but never gloomy or morose. The life of those who imitate him will be full of earnest purpose, true. There's nothing wrong with that. They will have a deep sense of personal responsibility, check, good. Levity will be repressed. There will be no boisterous merriment, no rude jesting, right? No bad jokes, no off-color jokes. But the religion of Jesus gives peace like a river. It does not quench the light of joy, does not restrain cheerfulness, nor cloud the sunny, smiling face. Joy, cheerfulness, sunny, smiling face. And then in the next paragraph, she just gives what I regard as some great advice. I actually just wrote here, this is great advice. Let's read this paragraph. If we keep uppermost in our minds the unkind and unjust acts of others, we shall find it impossible to love them as Christ has loved us. But if our thoughts dwell upon the wondrous love and pity of Christ for us, the same spirit will flow out to others. We should love and respect one another, notwithstanding the faults and imperfections that we cannot help but see. Humility and self-distrust should be cultivated and a patient tenderness with the faults of others. This will kill out. I like that. This will kill out all narrowing selfishness and make us large-hearted and generous. Exactly. So now she goes not just to life generally, but people. How should we relate to people? Well, we don't calibrate to the person, we calibrate to Jesus, right? Because if we calibrate to the person, you're going to see hypocrisies, you're going to see inconsistencies, right? I mean, you just heard Jose say tonight that I'm like a pet, <laughs> right? Like, like, if you spend enough time, if I came and lived in your house for a month, you would be tired of me. And if you came and lived in my house for a month, I might be tired of you too, right? So it's easy to hone in on the weaknesses of people, the shortcomings of people, the hypocrisies and inconsistencies of people, but if we calibrate to Jesus and then we look at others, it will be so much easier to say, you know what? Sinner saved by grace. Hey, he's like me, imperfect, in need of a savior, a saint of God, in Christ. That's just great advice, great advice. Um, I really like on page 160, two times she uses the phrase borrowed trouble. Some are always fearing and borrowing trouble. Ooh, isn't that true? Oh, isn't that true? I tell you, as somebody who spent 
almost 20 years in pastoral ministry, there is a certain kind of person that likes to borrow trouble, right? They, we would say today, like, drama queens. And not all drama queens are women, by the way. There's some drama queens that are dudes, because drama kings doesn't sound quite right, right? Like, people that are borrowing trouble, like, just, just stop. Don't borrow trouble, how about borrow a little joy and borrow a little happiness? I just wrote well in the, in the margin there. Middle of page 160, 122. Jesus is our friend. Did you underline that? I hope you underline that because she just says it outright. Jesus is our friend. Top of the next page, 161. Cast your care upon God and remain calm. This is 123 of the original. Remain calm and cheerful. And when I read that, I thought about those shirts that you sometimes see, right? Like keep calm and carry on. And then there's all kinds of memes. Keep calm and mind the gap. Keep calm and party on or whatever the various memes are. Well, how about this one? Keep calm and trust Jesus. How about that? Keep calm and trust Jesus. The next paragraph I just wrote, facts. Facts. Literally, I just wrote right there. Look at it. Facts. <laughs> Let's read that. It is not the will of God that his people should be weighed down with care, but our Lord does not deceive us. Well, amen. He does not say to us, do not fear. There are no dangers in your path. He knows there are trials and dangers, and he deals with us plainly. He does not propose to take his people out of a world of sin and evil, but he points them to a never-failing refuge. His prayer for his disciples was, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. In the world, he says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Be happy, be joyful, because I've overcome the world. Exactly. It's the command of Jesus to calibrate to him, not to the world, not to others, not to self. Right? We're going to calibrate to something. Well, if we calibrate to the Lord, then we're going to be okay. We're going to be happy. Those around us are going to be happy. But if we calibrate to others, or if we calibrate to the world, to the culture, to a crazy planet that is falling apart at the seams, or if we calibrate to our own iniquities and discouragements, well, then we're going to be all out of whack, right? All out of calibration and sync. And so I really like that idea that God is not deceiving us. He's telling us the truth. Life is hard. But again, hard compared to what? Right? Goliath compared to what? Goliath compared to me, okay, I could shake in my boots. But Goliath compared to Jesus, it's laughable, right? Like my friend Ty Gibson likes to say, and when he, when he first said it, I'll be honest, when I first heard it, I was like, whoa, that's kind of strong. He might have overstated that a little bit. But you know what? The more I've thought about it, I like it. He said, look, here's the truth. 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, when eternity is rolling gloriously into the future and creation is singing the continual praises of God and we're eating the fruits of the new heaven and the new earth and doing all of the wondrous exploring. And I had my good friend Cassandra send me a, a lovely text the other day after one of our sessions. And she said, I so appreciate this session because, and she's a very, very intelligent person. Cassandra, I love you, girl. And she was saying that, that, she hadn't thought of heaven as a place of continuing learning, right? Like learning, the scientific enterprise, 
grasping things, understanding things, that God is rolling creation out in front of us. And we're like, wow, wow, in learning and growing and and coming up with theories and testing them and hypotheses and all of that. Well, so Ty says, 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, whatever, as eternity rolls into the future, he says, all of this, all of this pain, all of this heartache, all of this sadness, all of this great controversy here on earth, he said, is going to seem like a really bad night in a really bad hotel. Now, I don't know if you've ever stayed in a really bad hotel. I've stayed in some bad hotels in my time, like wet sheets bad, cockroaches bad, and not all of them in other countries, in the United States. Like, And it's when you first hear it, it sounds a little dismissive, and it's a little bit like, well, wait a minute. But no, actually, that's true. The first time I heard him say it, I was like, oh, that's maybe a bit too strong. But it's true. That's Paul's point. You know, the, the, the trials and tribulations of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed. So if we can just calibrate to eternity and calibrate to Jesus' victory, then this world with all of its pain, with all, yes, pain, and yes, sadness, and yes, I wrote a book about this, God in Pain. It's out of print and has been for about a year, but we're going to reprint it. But one of the things I talk about in there is that no one, and this is actually an argument that C.S. Lewis makes, no individual person can experience any more pain than they are personally capable of experiencing. So Lewis uses this illustration of like people waiting in a dentist's office. I just went to the dentist's office today. And he says, if you have six people waiting in a, I'm not going to get this illustration exactly right. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but this is the point. If you have six people in a dentist's waiting room, they all have sore teeth right? And that person has a toothache, and that person has a toothache, and that person has a toothache, and that person has a toothache. Everybody has a toothache. You could say, wow, there's a lot of pain in that room. And if there were six people in that room, you could say the total amount of pain in that room is 6x, right? Because you got six people, and they're all experiencing x pain, 6x. Then Lewis makes this salient observation. Yeah, you can say 6x, but it's actually kind of misleading because nobody is experiencing 6x of pain. Everybody is only experiencing their own pain. So he says this idea of the the sum total of pain or the sum total of misery, he said that's a misleading idea. And I think this is a great point, and I actually talk about this in detail in my book, that, that, but joy isn't like that. Joy is different. Joy is shared. Pain is privatized. Oh, I really like that. Joy is shared and pain is privatized, right? Like you can only experience the pain that you experience. And it's terrible and it's tragic and there is a lot of pain and suffering and death and disease in the world. But compared to what? If Jesus has conquered sin and conquered death and conquered disease and conquered evil, then let's put faith in him and at some point in the distant future, we'll look back and this will all seem, as Ty says, like a really bad night in a really bad hotel. Okay, then she goes on to talk about the birds of the air and... You know, she basically says, look, the birds are happy. One of my favorite things about being a bird watcher is how happy birds are, how beautiful they are, how cute they are. I mean, the joy of finding an owl, discovering a nest, hearing, you know, a bird song. I mean, birds are amazing. If you're not a birder, you should buy a pair of binoculars, buy a guidebook to wherever you live. If you live in the United States, buy a U.S. bird book. If you live in Sri Lanka, buy a Sri Lankan bird guide. Get a pair of binoculars, even if they're cheap and start looking for birds and identifying them, I guarantee you this, it will make your life better. 
I promise you that. I've been birding since 1996, uh, 1999, excuse me. And I promise you, promise you, if you get a pair of binoculars and you get a guidebook, and every time you see and identify a bird accurately, you check it off, observe it, look what it does, look, look at its colors, look at its beak shape, look at its... You think, well, birds aren't very interesting. You want to know why you think birds aren't interesting? Because you haven't looked at them through a good pair of binoculars. Buy the most expensive pair of binoculars that you can afford and start looking at birds. And I promise, I promise your life will get better. That sounds crazy. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus literally commanded us to look at the birds. Look at the birds. And I'm telling you, you want a better life? There's a lot of things you can do to have a better life. Oh, invest in this stock portfolio. Read these books. Go to this. Get, you know, fit. Okay, all, yep, there's nothing wrong with that. You want to be happy? Get a pair of binoculars. Start watching birds. Get a feeder. Put a feeder in your backyard. Put some sunflower seeds in it. Put some bananas out or some oranges out if you have tropical birds. Get a pair of binoculars. Your life will improve. She then talks about the flowers. Yes. She then calls God the divine artist. Yes. Jumping over to page 163. By the way, I've gotten so many people into bird watching over the years. I'll just give you a quick example. My dear friends, Brian and Chantel Simmons, who I love so much. Brian and Chantel Simmons, we got them into bird watching probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago. I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. I don't know. But they will, now they're like crazy into it. They're, they're as into it as Violet and I and Brian, I think maybe even more. They love birding. And periodically I'll get a text from Brian and he has a scope that he attaches a camera to. And not too long ago, he sent me this amazing video of a, of a great gray owl, the largest owl in North America, feeding its chicks. An up-close video, like you're in the nest. This is a video that he had taken. They'd found the owls and they'd gotten this incredible video. And he just sent a video. And the video, the, the text said something like this. I can't thank you enough for getting us in to bird watching. And I've gotten texts like that from Brian and Chantel periodically. We have many friends like this. Our friends Nathan and Anna into bird watching. Bernice and Jose into bird watching. I mean, there's a long list of people. I'm an evangelist for Jesus. I'm an evangelist for rock climbing. And I'm an evangelist for bird watching. You want a better life? Start watching birds. Okay. Um... <laughs> oh, man, I could say so much. A deeper experience of his love. The one, I'll just go to this one last reference to light bearer. This is on the very last page. Second to the last paragraph. Then the redeemed will be welcomed to the home that Jesus is preparing for them, right? We're going cosmic here. We're going big picture. There their companions will not be the vile of the earth, liars, idolaters, the impure and unbelieving, but they will associate with those who have overcome Satan and through divine grace have formed perfect characters. Every sinful tendency, every imperfection that afflicts them here has been removed by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. And the excellence and brightness of his glory, far exceeding the brightness of the sun, is imparted to them. Light bearer. Right? They're shining. Jesus is shining in them and through them and off of them. Far exceeding the brightness of the sun is imparted to them. And the moral beauty, the perfection of his character, shines through them in worth far exceeding this outward splendor, they are without fault before the great white throne, sharing the dignity and the privilege of angels. Last paragraph. In view of the glorious inheritance that may be his 
What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. He may be poor, yet he possesses in himself a wealth and dignity that the world can never bestow. The soul redeemed, cleansed from sin with all its noble powers dedicated to the service of God is of surpassing value, surpassing worth. And there is no joy in heaven. And excuse me, and there is joy in heaven in the presence of God and the holy angels over one soul redeemed, a joy that is expressed in songs of holy triumph. I love the fact that the last word of this book is triumph. What a great, great, great chapter. Let's do the rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. The point of this chapter is unmistakable. I'm sure that everybody's point was something like this. Not exactly maybe in these words, but clearly this is the point of the chapter. God is the source of our joy and light, and we are invited to live lives not of fretful anxiety, fear, and discouragement, but of trust and of joy and of service. That's the point. We are his representatives. We are his letters. We are to reflect his love and his goodness to the world around us to our street, to our neighborhood, to our family, to our community. The person, what do we learn about the person? God wants our happiness even more than we ourselves want it. Jesus is our friend. Rejoicing in the Lord, our holiness and our happiness, because notice she ends on holiness, perfection of character and sin gone and reflecting Jesus' perfect symmetrical character. That's holiness. Well, I've said before, and I'll say it a million times again before I die, your holiness and your happiness are not two different things. They're the same thing. Holiness means to be different, to be other, to be like God, right? Leviticus 11, be holy because I'm holy. God wants you to be maximally holy because he wants you to be maximally happy. And your happiness is found in your holiness. I know we live in a degenerate age right now that tells us and teaches us that the way to happiness, the pathway to happiness is selfishness and lust and the accumulation of, of widgets and trinkets and toys. That is not true. That is not true at all. The secret to happiness is holiness, to be like Jesus. God wants your happiness even more than you want it. Amen. What's the prayer? How do we pray this chapter? Father, make me a light bearer. Right? She comes back to that theme over and over and over again. How do we practice this chapter? Speak words of faith and trust, not doubt and discouragement. Look at the flowers and ignore the thorns. Look at the roses and ignore the thistles. They're there. But calibrate to the Lord, not to this fallen world. The promise. God has triumphed over sin, death, and Satan. I had to get the word triumphed in there. And his victory is now ours in Christ. And this is cause for joy, eternal and ecstatic joy. Okay, everybody, what was your word? Oh, there's my word. Rose Baker says light bearer. Yeah, that was my word. And it is composite word, a hyphenated word, but that's my word, light bearer. What do we got here? Allison says, by the way, Alice, I loved your drawing. Allison, I loved your drawing. What did you say? Practice. Stop and smell the roses. Promise, John 16, 33 says Allison, amen. Okay, let's see. Allison says, paradigm. Isabel Garcia says, light bearer, reflect, triumph. Great word, Byzantium 7-7. Light bearers, woohoo! 
Ken, uh, Bernice says positivity. Zebra poet says letter, good word. Oh, a lot of light bearers. Great, light bearer, light, joy, light bearer, joyful. Deb says, we knew it. I'm stuck at consider the lilies. Yep, representatives, great word. Look, says Michelle, light bearer, joy. Marco look up says letters, that's good. Letter, trust. Megan says, I drew a rose for this chapter and my word was triumph. Excellent. I love the fact that the last word is triumph. Witness, large-hearted, rejoice, reflect. Somebody's saying, are we going to do Christ object lessons soon? No, we're going to do Prophets and Kings next, later this year. Prophets and Kings, 60 chapters. Stay tuned to my Instagram page, my Facebook page. By the way, okay, now I have to make this announcement because we have more people here. Here's the announcement, everybody. Oh, wait, a couple more. Triumph, Pathway. <laughs> Angel says, I wanted to use Lightbearer, but I couldn't because I thought it was wrong. So mine is Correspondence. Oh, that's cool. I really like Correspondence, like a letter. She also uses the word report in the same way that kind of letter, our report about God. Somebody says, do the great controversy. We will do the great controversy in due time. But that'll be the last one, right, in the set, right? Great controversy all the way at the end. We still got to do Christ's object lessons, thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, prophets and kings. Actually, I mean, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. Um, DA, I'm going to pull up with... <laughs> okay, so everybody, if you want to be enrolled in the drawing, and I'll do a post about this, you send an email to david at lightbearers.org. That's david at lightbearers.org. If you want to know how to spell lightbearers, go find it in this chapter. <laughs> david at lightbearers.org. The subject line must say, and I'm going to be a stickler about this, SC drawing. SC drawing. And the reason is I'm going to do a search for SC drawing, and then all of them will come up, and that's how I'm going to do the drawing. Okay, we're giving away two free copies of the Conflict Beautiful Marbled Edge set and two free, not copies, sets, full sets, and two free sets of the, um, oh, by the way, I have an extra, I actually have an extra hardcover Steps to Christ that I'll give out too, and I'll, I'll, I'll sign it, I'll write something nice inside. Um, so I've got that as well. So we've got five things we're going to be giving away. Um, SC drawing to David at Lightbearers. We will be back on Saturday night. Tonight is Wednesday, I think, right? Tonight's Wednesday. So we got Thursday night off, Friday night off, Saturday night. We are back here. That'll give me plenty of time to kind of get my thoughts together for the review. I want to talk a little bit about um, some memorization stuff. And we'll do a big review and we'll do the drawing on Saturday night at 7 o'clock. I'll put all this up in my Instagram and Facebook. But uh, this was a great session. I hope you all enjoyed it. Lots of people, okay, what are we saying here? Okay, so that's what, oh, by the way, yeah, I, I didn't, for, I neglected to say, in the body of the email, you can send me a message, you can say whatever you want to say, but make sure you let me know if you're a first-time reader of Steps to Christ, because we'll have one drawing for first-time readers, and then we'll have another drawing for just everybody else. So if you're a first-time reader of Steps to Christ, let me know in the body of the email. Okay, everybody, that's it. Um... Love you all so much, and we'll see you in a couple days' time. Stay tuned. 
By the way, I'm going to put up a really, I'm going to, I'm going to put up two important posts on my Facebook and Instagram page in the next two days. I'm going to put up a really beautiful post about my friend Jed Walters that passed away, and I'm going to put up a post about the upcoming uh, Holy Land tour with Ty Gibson and myself. So be on the lookout for those on Instagram and on Facebook. I love you all. Let's close with prayer, and I look forward to receiving those emails. I want to get hundreds of emails. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you. We want to be letters. We want to be light bearers to the world. Father, we know that there is not light in us. The light in us is darkness. What we need is the light of Jesus to shine in us and through us. Father, this book has been such an incredible book, Steps to Christ. And not just steps to Christ, but steps with Christ and in Christ. Father, he has triumphed on our behalf. Triumph, victory. Father, we are more than conquerors through you. And I want to pray for those people, particularly those that are sometimes prone to discouragement or depression or despondency. Father, may this chapter be an invitation to them, a wake-up call for them to recalibrate, to reorient to that which matters most. Father, forgive us where we compare ourselves to whatever. Lord, help us to compare you to our challenges, to our frustrations, to our difficulties, to our obstacles. And Father, help us to live in the light of your love, to be light bearers to the world around us. Father, this has been an incredible challenge, short, but power-packed. And I pray that you'll bring us back in a couple days and that we'll have a really great experience reviewing and thinking back over all of the steps that we've taken in, with, and to Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.